Man, I've I've missed some of those songs. It's good worshiping together with those old hymns. It's hard to lead that on guitar, so I've missed that. I've missed that piano and those those songs. If you have your Bibles, we'll be back in Deuteronomy chapter 5 this morning. You can be opening there. As you're opening, though, in 1995, a guy named Gary Chapman uh, wrote a book that's become one of the most popular books used in, um, in relationships and in marriage and marriage counseling and premarital counseling. In Chapman's book, if, if you don't know the name, his name, you'll probably recognize the, the title, The Five Love Languages. And Chapman's point in that book is that there are five love languages, ways that we communicate love to one another as human beings, as spouse, as uh, spouses. And, and, and in, that, in that book, he argues that the five love languages are words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Now his point is that people are different, human beings are different, and so we receive and give love in different ways. He argues that it's good for us to know as husband and wife what way our spouse naturally gives and receives love so that we can give and appreciate the love that they give uh, in their language, right? So that it communicates. It's a pretty good point. It makes a lot of sense as you read through his argument. You, would, you could imagine where there would be problems in a relationship if Bubba, all he wants to do is, is, is serve uh, you know, his wife, and the wife really just wants quality time. She wishes that Bubba would come home from work on time so that they could have a meal together around the table. And he just wants to go and mow the grass and serve her and, and, and wash her car for her and do those things as acts of service, but really she just wants to spend time with him. Or on the other hand, uh, uh, Bubba's way of showing love is maybe words of affirmation. So while he calls her sugar baby and honey bunches and sweetums and all these things that he says to affirm her, really what she would rather do is just to receive some gifts every now and then for Mother's Day to have something nice like a bouquet of flowers or something instead of a vacuum cleaner or something to clean the house with. They're missing each other because they're not communicating in one another's love language. Our text this morning, I think, demonstrates to us that God has a love language. That God himself has a love language, and that language is obedience. I think we see that in the text this morning, and it's also affirmed for us in the New Testament. Jesus himself said in John 14 that if you love me, you will Keep my, that, man, that was really good. Some of you were there, but some of you were kind of like dozing off. So Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's demonstrating to us that there is a love language there, that God demands from us obedience. And again, in Luke chapter 6, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Obedience is a love language that we're expected to have towards our maker, towards God. So the point today is simple. Three words. Here it is. And, and I know some of you are thinking, well, I hope the sermon is as short as the point. Here's the point. Three words. Trust and obey. We sang that song a few moments ago, and it goes perfectly where we're at in the text this morning. Here's the point. Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments that we're going to be walking through this morning in our text together. Trust and obey. And we see them 
that, that idea in all ten of the commandments. To recap where we've been, though, if you've, this is your first time with us or you haven't been in a while, here's where we've been. We've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, and we're up to chapter 5. And so far, we see that Israel is entering the land of promise. They're entering that land that God has told them that he would give them. And Moses is leading them, but he realizes that he's not going to be able to go into the land because of his own sin. He's been prohibited from going into the land, and so he's giving them a farewell address. He's giving them a final charge or sermon, if you will, so that as they go into the land being led by Joshua, these are his final words to them, and they are words from God. And God is reminding them in this of their past. He's reminding them of their failures and the way that they've sinned and the result of their sin, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He's reminding them of their past, but he's also reminding them of his faithfulness. That despite the fact that they were sinful and wayward, that he remained faithful the whole time and upheld the covenant that he had made with them. Because he is faithful, our God is faithful. They've been instructed, just before this text, they've been instructed on who they should conquer and then those nations that they shouldn't conquer because the Lord has given those nations a land. Moses knows it's been revealed to him. He's teaching, he's preaching on this point. As we get into this final section, this next section of Deuteronomy, he's going to show them how to live in the land. He's reminded them of their past. He's reminded them of their failures, reminded them of the faithfulness of God. And now he's going to show them, here's how you live as you enter the land. That's what we'll be doing in the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. Starting with chapter 5 is talking about what it looks like to live as God's people as you enter into the land that he's given you. And God knows, God's shown Moses this, that their biggest problem, the biggest problem facing Israel was not the giants they would have to conquer, the cities that they would have to overcome, uh, keeping this kind of a multitude of people together As you travel, armies that would rise up against them, their biggest problem, their greatest opposition would be none of those things. Their greatest opposition would be the sin and the idolatry in their own hearts. And that's where we spend our time. And that's why we start this morning with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. It's because he's going to begin to show them, here's what it looks like to live as God's people, not as those who would worship other gods or follow idols. And so um, God's people... They don't know how to relate to him. How do you relate to a holy and perfect and righteous God? How do you have a relationship with one who is completely other and set apart in holiness? And we start, Deuteronomy chapter 5 gives us that answer. How do we relate to, how do we have relationship with this holy God? Before we get into the Ten Commandments and begin to walk through them, they'll be our outline this morning. Sometimes folks like to take notes, and if you're if one of those type persons, our outline this morning will be the outline that Moses gives us in chapter 5. It'll be the Ten Commandments, and so we'll walk through those. If you're a note taker, though, you may get lost if you try to keep the points straight. Think about this in this way. Each time we move to a new commandment, your numbering starts over, if that helps. If you're an outline and note taking type person, we'll make several points under each commandment. But we see God's love language here, obedience, trusting and obeying the God of the universe. It's in the Ten Commandments, but it's also summarized for us in verse 1. Before we ever get to the Ten Commandments, he shows us this in chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read together. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So in that one verse, in that one sentence, there's three imperatives there. There's three commands. There's three things that they're told you will do. Hear, O Israel, 
Learn, Israel, and do, Israel. You have to hear. All of Israel was called together and told to listen. Listen to the words that the Lord is about to give them. Listen to these commandments, these ways that you are to follow, these ways that you are to trust and obey the God of the universe and have relationship with him. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we come into a place like this and have Bible studies and sermons so that we can hear the word of the Lord. If I'm just up here telling stories, it's of no good to us. It's the word of the Lord that we need to hear this morning. But secondly, he tells them to learn. You see where he says this. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak and you're hearing today, and you shall learn them. This requires a couple things. It means that we have to remember. We have to recall. To learn something, you have to remember. If you just forget it, then you haven't learned anything. So we have to recall. That gets harder for us as we get older. I'm realizing that. But we have to remember. Secondly, we must dwell and meditate on it. Once you recall what you've heard, we dwell on it and we ask the Lord, what are, what are you doing here in the text? What are you showing me? What does this mean for me? How are you wanting me to change as a result of what I've seen in your word? How is this wanting to kill sin in my own heart? So we hear, we learn, and then we do. That's what he says finally to them. Be careful to do them, these things that they're being told. It would be vanity for us to hear and to learn and then to walk away having neglected the truth that we've heard and we've learned. We must do. And so he's demonstrating to us, he's showing all of us this, that God's love language is obedience. Hear, learn, and do these things. It pleases the Lord. And these are the specifics of that obedience that he's looking for. So before we look at the Ten Commandments, a statement should be made at least about their arrangement. The first four, the first four commandments deal with our duties toward God. The final six deal with our duties toward man. The first four are vertical, if you think about that in that way, and our relationship with the Lord. The next six are horizontal. They're the relationship that we have with mankind. Something should be said about their relevance. These are not just commands that have interesting historical value. They're not just something that happened a long time ago to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. There is still significance for the New Testament church, for Poplar Spring Baptist Church. These commands still have application for us. Jesus himself obeyed these commands and fulfilled these commands in his obedience. So they're relevant for us. Something should also be said about the application of these commands. Real quick, four things. A lot of times we give the application at the end. I'm going to give it to you at the beginning. As you're in your growth groups this week, here's what you can talk about. Number one, as we're walking through these commandments, think to yourself, each one, how does this commandment or what does this commandment teach me about God? Second, what does this commandment teach me about Jesus Christ? We've already said that Christ, in his perfect obedience, in his perfect righteousness, fulfilled these commandments. So what does this commandment teach me about Christ? Third, what does this commandment teach me about my duty or obedience? What does this commandment teach me to do? Uh, And then fourth, what does this commandment teach me about the church, the people of God who are called together to be the body of Christ in this world? What does it teach us as a church? Let's begin. Verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Israel had had a problem with idol worship. This culture, the culture they were surrounded by, there was the constant threat of idol worship and idolatry. 
We may glance at a text like this and think, well, hey, I'm not, I'm not struggling with the worship of idols. I'm not going to go home this evening and on my fireplace mantle have these little figurines that I'm going to bow to or pray to. I don't struggle with idol worship. But if we define idol worship as anything that directs our worship away from God, anything in our lives, anything or any person that directs our worship away from God as an idol, then by that definition, we all have the potential to be idolaters, those that would worship idols in our hearts. When we're worshiping something, we're made to worship. We, we've been built by the creator of the universe to set our affections on something, set our worship towards something. And so I think you can look around at your time, your talents, and your treasure and ask the Lord, what is it today, Lord? What is it today? What is it this week that I'm worshiping? What is it that I've set my affections on that may be drawn away from you? Ask the Lord today to identify what idols you may have in your heart. Note that this first commandment is not a statement about priority. In this culture, many of these nations were polytheistic. It means that they would have had a number of gods. They would have worshipped any number of gods. And, and so God is not saying here that Israel, you can have 32 other gods so long as I'm first in pecking order. You see this more clearly in the Hebrew Where he says, you shall have no other gods, this next part of the phrase, the next part of the verse says, no other gods before my face. Do you hear the emphasis there? He's saying that you may not have any other gods instead of me, in addition to me, or alongside of me. No other gods. Puritan Matthew Henry said this of this verse, whatever's esteemed or loved, feared, or served, delighted in, or depended upon more than God, that, whatever it is, is in effect an idol in our hearts. So this morning, friends, what do you love the most? What do you desire the most? What do you want the most out of life, out of next week? What do you strive for the most? What do you aim for the most? What are you thinking about the most? The answers to those questions can help us to identify what idols may be in our own hearts. Commandment number two. Verse um, number eight. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This commandment, like the first, deals with our worship. The first commandment has demonstrated whom we should worship, the object of our worship. The second commandment demonstrates how we should worship, the way, the right way of worshiping the one true God. This commandment teaches us at least three things. Number one, how we're to think about God. Number two, how we're to worship God. And number three, that these things are important issues to God. Who God is and how we are to think of him and how we're to worship him are important to him. So how do we think about God? This is not just a prohibition against making little idols, little figurines of false gods. It is that. It's certainly that, but it's more. This is a prohibition against making images of the true and living God as well. Two weeks ago in in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Pastor Stephen walked us through Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
And in that chapter, it says in verse 15, Since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at, uh, at Horeb, from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure. He's telling Moses, you didn't see anything. There was no image for you there. You simply heard my voice. So don't depict me in any way. Exodus 32, the story of Aaron and the golden calf. If you're like me, the first few times you probably heard that text read or or taught to you in Sunday school or at vacation Bible school, you probably heard about that image of that calf that that Aaron made as Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And you probably thought, well, he's making another god. But verse 4 shows us that that's not the case. Verse 4 of chapter 32 demonstrates to us that he was making this calf as an image of the God of Israel. His intentions were to make an idol, but not of a foreign God, but of the God of Israel, the true God. And this was strictly forbidden. Why is that the case? Because God chose to reveal himself through his word. Through the words of Moses and the prophets, through the words of the apostles, through the words of Scripture. That's how God has revealed himself. So it's that, it's his word that should dominate our thoughts as we think about God. Not our own experiences, not our own emotions, not our imaginations, not our opinions, not our representations, but his word. It also defines how we should worship him. We worship him according to the way he's revealed himself, which is his word. If idol worship is the worship of someone or something else, then worshiping the true and living God outside of the way he's revealed himself is also idol worship. Does that make sense? It's the worship of our own selves. It's the worship of our thoughts instead of the true and living God. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. God in the word has revealed himself as one who hates sin and will pour out his wrath on sinners. That's a hard statement to hear. And so many preachers across the land today and on TV will, will minimize that truth because we don't want to talk about that aspect of God. We don't talk about the God who hates sin and the God who will punish sinners. And so instead we're going to lift up the attributes of God like love and kindness so that we're not talking about that part of God's nature. But you see what we've done in doing that. We've created an idol. We've created a God who is not the God revealed in Scripture, or at least not fully revealed in Scripture. We've minimized part of him, and so we're worshiping something other than the true and living God revealed in his word. Friends, that's why we cherish his word as our highest authority, because it's only through his word that we have hope of not being idol worshipers. And these are serious issues to God. We see that thirdly in this, in this, uh, in this, in this commandment. He shows us that by giving us a stern warning about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. But he also demonstrates how serious it is by giving us a promise of showing steadfast love to thousands who keep my commandments. You see what he's doing here, but you see how serious this issue is because he equates disobedience with hate. If you disobey this commandment, you hate me. So if you love me, you keep my commandments. But those who love me, we keep. That sounds really familiar. We hear that in the New Testament. That's what Jesus has told us. Third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. When we hear this commandment, we immediately think of using profanity, our curse words, foul language somehow with God associated, the name of God associated to the phrase. And certainly that's the case. That is included in this commandment, but that's not all this commandment deals with. 
To take the name of the Lord in vain means uh, swearing, taking oaths by the Lord's name. It also has implications for us as believers. As Christians, we bear the name of Christ. We claim the name of Christ. We are Christians. We are ones who follow after Christ, little Christs. And when we live contrary to the way he lived, when we live contrary to his name, that's taking the name, that's living with his name in vain. Now in this culture, knowing the name of a god, knowing the name of a pagan and foreign god in these polytheistic cultures gave that religion in their minds access to God. So if you knew the name of God, you could call upon that name of whatever that god was and call curses and blessings. So they thought. So it's a special thing here for the true God, the God of Israel, to give the Israelites his name, to, re- to reveal himself and identify himself so that they could know him. And he's prohibiting us. He's saying, hey, don't take my name wrongfully. Don't take my name in vain. Don't use my name. Don't wear my name. Don't call yourself a follower of Christ, a one who would be a follower of Yahweh and do it sinfully and or, or wrong. We kind of get this in our culture as well, right? The way our name is used. Somebody calls me on the telephone and, and, uh, and, I, and I immediately pick up and it's a computer or an operator and I can tell they're probably wanting me to purchase something and they start in this way. They say, is Justin Jones available? Nope, he's not. I'm sorry, he's not here. They've missed the name. They didn't even know who they were talking to. They probably saw it somewhere and thought it was Justin James. That's my first name and my last name, but they they got it wrong. They didn't even get the name right, and so I'm not going to give them the time of the day. I know they're wanting something from me. Jessica calls and says, hey, babe, got a question for you. One, I know her voice, but two, she's just called me by a name that I absolutely will stop in my tracks and know I'm talking to my wife right now. Because she's called the name that I go by. It's my name to her. If you called me and said, Pastor Matt, well, I would probably take a minute to, to respond because that's still taking time for me to get used to uh, hearing. Uh, uh, that's a new thing for me. But eventually, I'll respond and go, that's somebody at Poplar Spring Baptist Church. They know the name. They got the name right. We know that with our name, there's some associated uh, relationships. There's some relationships that we have with people based on our name. And God is saying here to the Israelites, you have my name. You're ones who would be under the banner of Yahweh, who would be under the creator of the universe. Watch how you use my name. Next commandment, number four. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or any of your sojourner, sojourner who is within your gates, that, you, uh, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. There's a lot we could say here. There's much debate about this in Christian circles today. The application of this commandment, is there still a Sabbath? For them, the Sabbath was Saturday. That's not debated. That's clear. But God, God and, and that goes back to creation. God didn't need rest. He's the all-powerful God of the universe who never tires, whose arm is never weak. And yet he rested on the Sabbath as an example for man, knowing that we would need rest. So there's many things we can glean from this text. Let's make a few thoughts and comments on it. After Christ's resurrection, we see the New Testament church meeting on Sunday, the Lord's Day, celebrating the resurrection. It's no longer the Jewish Sabbath. 
So the question is, is it still today for us the day of rest? Should it be Saturday? Should it be Sunday? What about uh, people that are required to work on Sundays? What about pastors that will tell you that Sunday is their busiest day of the week? We don't have enough time to d- dive into all of those questions in the f- little while that we have left, but I think verses 13 through 15 help us to see some of the answers to that question. Remember the Sabbath here. The phrase, remember the Sabbath, doesn't mean that while you're out on the boat in the lake on Sunday, you stop and go, oh, it's Sunday. I've remembered the Sabbath. I've done my job. I've met the commandment. The rest of the verse tells us at least that much. Keep it holy, the Lord says. So there's that. If you continue through the text, you see that there's value in working and laboring. The Lord says that with the commandment that he highlights the truth that work is a good thing. Labor is a good thing. He's given us the ability to do that. So whatever work looks like for you, whatever labor looks like for you, it's a good thing. It's to be done as unto the Lord, the text tells us. There's a rhythm in this text that we should notice and a rhythm that should be seen in our lives as well. We work six days, we rest. We work six days, we rest. We labor six days, we rest. And this is good for us. This pattern, this rhythm is good for us. Now remember, these are a nation of slaves. These Israelites are being brought out of slavery. All they've known is work. And God is saying that as your king, as the one who's given you this land, there's going to be a mandatory forced day of rest. This was incredible news for them. And some of you this morning need to hear that, that though you're not a a slave in that way, some of you are living like slaves because all you do is work and the Lord is saying, rest, rest. This pattern in your life is there for a reason that you are to work and it's a good thing to work as unto the Lord, but you are also called to rest. This demonstrates our faith. That we trust him, that, that our, our working, that our providing income, our earnings are not what we're trusting in, but that we can rest knowing that it's the Lord that's provided for us anyways. We don't have to work that other day of the week. We don't have to be constantly running every day, but we can rest in him knowing that he'll provide for us. Another way we're enslaved by this text, again, the Israelites were slaved. In other ways that we're slaved by this in, in our context would be letting others dictate our days, our Sundays, our calendars. We all have tournaments or ball games or dance meets or other things that we have that are going on that are demanding our time. And in that, we're letting someone or something else enslave us, tell us where we should be and what we should be doing, setting our calendars for us. And the commandments right here for us, it's easy to respond. Rest. And I think we see this in our culture more than any other culture in the world. You ask someone how they're doing, and their first reply, almost with, without exception, by default most of the time, when we ask one another how we're doing, ah, oh, good, we're just busy. Ah, oh, just staying busy. And the Lord, I think, would tell us this morning that we're to rest in him. The spirit of this commandment is so that we would have time that we could get alone and put things aside, clear our minds, and rest in him. So can churches meet on Saturday? Short answer, yes. I don't think it's sinful for a church to meet on Saturday. But I think this pattern, this rhythm that we see in the text and in Scripture is there for us for a reason. When Jesus raised from the dead, he met with them on Sunday, met with his disciples on Sunday. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is discussing worship at Troas, and they meet on Sunday. There's a pattern there that we see all throughout church history. The the church has met on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And I think it's really strange that in the last couple generations, we're suddenly the ones asking the questions, well, does does it have to be? Why? Why is that the case? Why Why is it our generation that's... That's changing that because we're so busy. We have so many other things that we want to be doing. We're wanting to fit our schedules where we can fit the Lord in wherever we can. And he would call us this morning just to rest, to find Sabbath and keep it holy in him.
Number five, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In this fifth commandment, we see a transition. We talked about the structure of the commandments at the beginning. This fifth one, we see that there's a transition going on. The commands move from our relationship to God to our relationship with fellow man. There's an undeniable connection, though, between our love for God and our love for our neighbor. You can't separate those two. This transition also has another trait, though, namely that the commands become much straight, much more straightforward and shorter. And so our time discussing them will be much shorter. The idea in verse 5 is that we are to respect, revere, and obey, care for our parents. I think it's interesting here in the text that God gives us the first four commandments. Everything we've talked about to this point, God has been emphasizing, demonstrating to us through our lives and through our worship. We're to worship and honor God alone. Make no idols because you're to worship and, and, and honor God alone. Keep the Sabbath because we're to worship and honor God alone. And then you get to the fifth commandment. And he says, honor your mother and your father. And in fact, all of Moses' writings, there are only two things that we're commanded to honor, and that's God and our parents. And this points to the centrality of the family, the importance of the family unit, the importance of proper parental respect. The turnaround and degradation of the family in our society in the last 20 years is unprecedented in history. You can't look back on history and find a time in, our, in, in cultures as a whole where parents and the family unit was so torn down by society and culture. That's another whole sermon altogether, but it, there comes a, a promise with this, with this commandment. That your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The blessing here is not the motivation for obedience. It's not the why we would obey our parents so that we can live long and, and prosper in the land. The obedience here is the blessing that we obey. We continue in this love language with God. We trust him and, and his plan for our lives. Certainly, uh, there, there are exceptions to this. There are times when, when obeying a parent may be dishonoring the Lord or obeying the, uh, the parent in some situation may be uh, a sin. And certainly, we would, we, would, we would struggle there to understand how we are to walk faithfully. But the promise here to obey our parents, to honor our parents, to revere those that the Lord has set before us as authority in our lives is the blessing. That he's going he's gonna to use that relationship and that blessing in our lives. Number six, you shall not murder. Some translations read here, thou shalt not kill. If that's the case, then why am I going to go after this service today and eat a cheeseburger? That's not what the Lord is talking about here. Why do we have capital punishment? Why do we have war? What about self-defense where someone's life is taken in self-defense? The text would be read better. There would be a better translation here if we would read, Thou shalt not murder. There shall be no unlawful killing. The term here used in the Hebrew is never used for acts of war, never used for capital punishment, never used for lethal self-defense. What does it apply to then? It applies to forbidding acts of violence out of hatred or anger, malice or deceit, and in that resulting in the life taken of someone. Jesus even takes it a step further. He commands that if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, you've broken the spirit of this commandment. So this prohibits for us suicide and abortion and euthanasia and all other unsanctioned forms of killing. The point here, 
Real quickly, again, we can't spend a lot of time on each one of these, but the point here is that life is important to God. We live in a culture of death. Death is almost uh, glamorized in our culture. You see it on on movies and shows all the time that, that killing is just part of entertainment. But God prizes life. As humans were created in his image, we're image bearers of the God of the universe, of the king of the universe, and he cherishes life. It acknowledges that, that life and death are under his sovereign control. And so we don't go out and kill our enemy because doing so would be making ourselves God, saying that we're sovereign and in control of life. We take that life because that person's offended us, and so now we're saying that we are God. Do you see how in that, even in in the commandment that you should not murder, there's trust and obedience, trusting that he's sovereign, trusting that his plans are in place. And so we'll be obedient. We'll speak the language, the love language of God here and be obedient. Number seven. You shall not commit adultery. It doesn't come as a shock to you that I tell you our culture struggles with the sin prohibited in this commandment. It's everywhere we look. You hear it on the news. It's a, it's a common thing for us to hear that the government or the church should stay out of my bedroom. The fact is that God as creator claims the right to dictate the limits of our, of our, uh, and the nature of our sexual activity. As creator God, he says, I'm setting these boundaries. Here are the boundaries for you. Two statements really quick about this commandment, and we'll move on. Number one, as believers show covenant loyalty to God only, they show sexual loyalty to their spouse only. That's the parameters that the Lord has given us in the commandment. Our covenant loyalty to our spouse and sex and sexual activity says a lot about our love for God and our loyalty to the covenant that we have with him. It did for Israel. It does, does for us. Second statement. As believers seek to be outwardly pure in our sexual lives, so also we must strive to be inwardly pure in our sexual lives. It's not enough just to sustain from physical fornication. Jesus tells us that our, uh, that our hearts are to be pure. Our thoughts, our thinking are to be pure. In Matthew chapter 5, he says this. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. That's what we've read in the text this morning. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is far better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is far better for you to lose one of these body parts than for your whole body to go into hell. So the implications for us here are as numerous as the sand is on the seashore. There are many things we could list, but this commandment prohibits for us anything that would cause lust in our hearts towards someone who's not our spouse. Pornography, immodesty, premarital sex, homosexuality, unbiblical divorce. The Lord would call us to faithfulness here in not committing adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. This is pretty easy, pretty generic, pretty straightforward. It doesn't tell us what we shouldn't steal or when we shouldn't steal or from whom we shouldn't steal or, or why we shouldn't steal. It just, uh, it just says you shall not steal. And it enforces this thought 
That you won't steal anyone, anything from anyone at any time for any reason. It's a comprehensive command. The Old Testament and the New Testament teaches us that God is sovereign in his providence. That he provides for each one of us on an individual basis. Each one of us he is providing for. And so when we trust that kind of provision, we don't steal from others. Because that would be taking upon ourselves to steal what he's provided for them because we're not trusting that he's going to provide for us. Unless we read this command and, and, and think of a burglar sneaking through a house wearing all black and a little mask with a flashlight, certainly it, it does apply there. But there are some applications of this text in our modern context, in our world and in our culture. Cheating, whether it's in school or at work or on your taxes, defrauding another's business or defaming someone for your own profit. Gambling. It's, it's never a win-win with gambling. Either you win at your neighbor's expense or your neighbor wins at your expense. So someone is always losing to the benefit of the other person. Taking advantage of the poor. Taking advantage of, of your employees if you're business owners. Not paying them their due. What about our giving? What about robbing from the Lord? Not faithfully and sacrificially giving of our finances to his kingdom. I think these are all applications in our context of not stealing. Number nine. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the second table of the commandments, you've got the, the, the first four that are directed upwards towards the Lord. You've got the next six that are directed towards our neighbors and our, our horizontal relationships. And God is concerned with our personal holiness, with our piety. But he's also concerned with our love for our neighbor. And this commandment shows us that in our speech, we should be concerned with the effect that our, our words have on the whole community, on those around us. Our speech here, our truthfulness, is a measure of our loyalty to God. We love our neighbor by being honest. We, we speak with integrity and with truthfulness. Lying harms our neighbor. Giving false testimony is harmful to our neighbor. How can we say that we love God with our lips? How can we speak those words and then use our same lips to speak maliciously or to destroy our neighbor by false testimony or by deceit? Matthew 5, again, verse 33. Jesus says, again, you've heard it said to your ancestors, do not take a false oath, but make, a, uh, but make good uh, to the Lord all that you vow. But I say to you, do not swear at all, not by heaven, for it is God's throne, not by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, or, uh, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Any more is from the evil one. What's that saying to us? I think it's saying this, don't look for loopholes where you're telling the truth, but really, you're lying. But if I say it this way or if I leave out this part of the story, I'm not technically lying. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a truthful people. Don't slander people and talk with disregard towards their reputation. Number 10. I know we've went quickly. Last one. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. 
We've seen the vertical relationship that we're to have with the Lord in the first four commandments. It's Godward focused. We've seen the, the horizontal uh, relationship that we're to have with our neighbors, those commandments that are directed towards mankind and fellow man. And in these two, I think they're, they're, that we see even a deeper relationship. This 10th commandment d- demonstrates that, that God is clearly concerned with our outward behavior. He's, he's clearly concerned with our, 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 the way that we worship him, the way that we interact with fellow man. But here in the 10th commandment, he's concerned inwardly as well. Covetousness happens in the heart. It's something that would be possible for us to do and no one else know it. You could covet and, and the closest friends that you have, maybe even your spouse would never even know it because it's something that you've not said. It's just something in your heart. And God says even that is important. Even the thoughts of your mind and in your heart are important to him. Covetousness is a sin because it's a sin of the heart. It commands, it, it, it's a command that, that dictates our thoughts in our, in our heart. The point that Jesus is making here. Uh, and in the Sermon on the Mount is, is that, that drives that home. With each one of these Ten Commandments, he's taken it farther and said, it's not enough that you just don't pick up a gun and kill your neighbor, but if you've hated him, that sin in your heart, it's a heart issue, it's a sin issue there. The Ten Commandments are doing the same, and this, this commandment against covetousness demonstrates that to us. Obedience begins in the heart. Notice quickly, though, that you're not to cover it, what you're not to covet your wife, or your, your neighbor's wife, his house, his field, his servants, his animals, and then there's this, or anything. <laughs> so in case, that, in case none of those are an issue for you, in case you were to go home this evening, church family, and you don't have a problem with your neighbor's house, you don't have a problem with your neighbor's ox, you don't have a problem with your neighbor's wife, my neighbor's not even married, anything, anything. Also notice quickly in this commandment that your neighbor is mentioned here three times. The point is, again, going back to the commandment against theft, that the Lord has provided in his providence, in his sovereignty, those things for your neighbor, not for you. And to covet those things would be a denial of God's sovereignty, a violation of the first commandment. See how they're related here. Each one of these is requiring trust and obedience. Speaking of them all being related, we began in this way. We began in verse 1 saying that we are to hear, learn, and do. So the point of these commandments, the point of being a citizen of the kingdom is that we would hear from the Lord. We would hear his word. We would learn. And in learning, we would ask the Lord, what are you wanting to change in me? What are you wanting to do in my own heart? And then we're to do, we're to live obediently. Just to com- that's, the, that's what connects and ties these together. These, these are the love language of the Lord, that we would be obedient to him, that we would speak and have a relationship with him through obedience. But here's the other thing that, commandment, that the commandments do. They're not just for that. Here's the second half of why we have the commandments. You will fail. Here's why he gives us the commandments. He gives us them to show us, to demonstrate to us that you will fail. You will utterly fail. That's not too positive. That's not too optimistic. A way to end the service is by telling you you're going to fail at this. You're going to mess up. But God gives us the law so that we see how imperfect we are. He gives us the law that, so that we'll see that we are all lawbreakers. We can't keep the law. We can't do this because we have sick hearts. We have sinful hearts. But here's the good news. And this is, we're wrapping up. We're closing. Here's the good news. Jesus did. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly kept every one of these commandments. He had no other gods. He is God. 
He, had, he never made any images or idols because he is, Hebrews chapter 1, the exact representation of the nature of God. He is the image of God. He never took God's name wrongly. And in fact, his name is the name that's above all names. The name Jesus is the name that should never be abused. He never abused the Sabbath. He rested. He demonstrated that for us. And we find our rest in him. He always honored his parents, his earthly parents, but his heavenly father as well. And you remember back to the garden where he's praying in the garden, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He's demonstrating that type of obedience to us. He never killed with his thoughts, with his tongue, or with his physical uh, body. He never committed adultery. He never stole. He never lied. He never coveted. We couldn't stand before God on judgment day and live up to these commandments. That's what they're there for, is to show us that we will utterly fail. But we have someone who did. Jesus, after perfectly fulfilling these laws, offered up himself, his perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, dying in our place, because that's the result of breaking these commands, dying so that we could, through him, have life. And he offers his life in exchange for ours today, saying that I've fulfilled these and I've died in your place. I've been the obedience that you could never have. And so I'll exchange my perfect righteousness for your law-breaking unrighteousness. And that, friends, that's the good news, that today that is the gift that he offers to you. And he says of you, trust him. Trust and obey him. His His law keeping, his death on the cross, his resurrection in our place. Will you surrender to this king today? Will you trust this king today who perfectly kept these commandments on your behalf? who died in your place so that his spirit can now live inside of us and give us the ability to trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, it's our prayer today that you would, by your spirit, empower us to trust you, to trust your son's work on the cross in our place, dying for our sin. Father, for those of us that do know you, that have called upon your name, who have surrendered our lives to you, Father, we ask that by your spirit we would walk faithfully, that we would hear these commands this morning and ask, what is it that you're wanting to do in our lives? What is it that you're wanting us to give up? Father, would you in this time of response, in this time where we ask those questions, God, would you just by your spirit convict hearts? Father, we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. If you would stand, we're going to respond in singing together. If you're here this morning, you've never placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. If you're seeing the commandments today this morning and they're revealing to you, I could never keep that standard. I'll be around after this service. Please come and talk to me. I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to surrender to your life to this king.